All right, if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We will be in chapter 30 tonight. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 19. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. Cush, and Put, and Lud, and all Arabia, and Libya, and the people of the land that is in the league, shall fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, Those who support Egypt shall fall, and her proud might shall come down. From Migdal to Cyrene, and they shall fall within her uh, by the sword, declares the Lord God. And they shall be desolate in the midst of desolated countries. And their cities shall be in the midst of, the, of cities they are, that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have set fire to Egypt, and all her helpers are broken. On that day, messengers shall go out from me in ships to terrify the unsuspecting people of Cush, and anguish shall come upon them on the day of Egypt's doom, for behold, it comes." Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And I will dry up the Nile and will sail the land into the hand of evildoers. I will bring desolation upon the land and everything in it by the hand of foreigners. I am the Lord, I have spoken." Thus says the Lord God, I will destroy the idols and put an end to the images of Memphis. There shall no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt, so I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros a desolation and will set fire to Zoan and will execute judgment on Thebes. And I will pour out my wrath on Pelusium and the stronghold of Egypt and cut off the multitude of Thebes. And I will set fire to Egypt. Pelusium shall be in great agony. Thebes shall be breached, and Memphis shall face enemies by day. The young men of On and of Pabaseth shall fall by the sword, and the women shall go into captivity. At Tehep... Yep, that word. <laughs> Tehephanes. I actually practiced that a couple of times before I came in here. But The day shall be dark when I break their yoke bars of Egypt, and her proud shall come to an end in her... She shall be covered by a cloud, and her daughter shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgment on Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We'll stop there for right now. We will finish the entire chapter. We'll touch on the last couple of verses here at the end. Ancient Egypt was really the preeminent civilization for nearly 30 centuries. From around 31 B.C. to about 565 B.C., they reigned as a world superpower, and in most cases, they reigned as the world superpower. There, were, there have been a lot of world powers since Egypt, since that time, and, and in the history of the world, but Egypt is probably the longest reigning superpower to have ever existed in, consecu- in consecutive years. Their feats and greatness are still studied and marveled at today. They were wealthy, they were influential, and they were feared. Nations wanted to be like them, they wanted to be their friends, they wanted them as uh, allies for protection. But for nearly the same amount of time that they were a great, mighty world power, that close to 30 centuries, 
We've had about 25 centuries now where they have been not that. They have not had nearly the influence, nearly the power, nearly the wealth. Egypt has been nothing more than just another nation, really, over those, these last 25 centuries. They've had little to no world influence. They've had little to no military might. No nations are looking to them as an example for help. The chapter before us today tells us of that fall. It details more of that fall. Brian began to cover that last week in chapter 29. And we will continue that fall. We, the, the title and probably most of your, your Bibles reads, The Lament for Egypt. I don't really know that this is as much of a lament. It, it is to some extent. Tyre, we, we're, a couple of chapter go, chapters ago, we had a lament for Tyre. Uh, and we saw that was a true lament. It went over everything that had happened uh, in the, the history, really, of Tyre, what they were as a nation. It was a, a true eulogy, so to speak, or a true lament. Uh, here, in our chapter, it's not as much that. It's, it's more of a continuation of the prophecy from chapter 29. A more, more of a continuation of the details of how their fall would come, how judgment would come on them from God. Warren Wiersbe believes that this is dated the same time as the prophecy from chapter 29. And there's not really any disagreement uh, with him among any of the commentators that I read, so there's no reason to believe that this is really a lapse in time in, in this, the beginning of, of, of this chapter at least, at least is verses 1-19 through 19 that we read. Here in this chapter, this chapter breaks down into several smaller sections. It kind of, thus says the Lord. If you, you picked up on that as we went through the chapter and read it, it says, thus says the Lord several times there. And, and each one of those are kind of smaller sections. These, in these smaller sections, the first three really lay out a destruction of all the major areas in which Egypt trusted in. Their military might, their false gods, and in their, their wealth the Nile specifically, that their wealth came from and all that their, their greatness that they were able to, to muster came from a lot of times was from the Nile. We'll, we'll go into that a little bit more in detail. Here in verses 1-4, through four, we see who is addressed and, and we see the, the beginning of this prophecy. The prophecy is announced and it is spoken against Egypt. The people of Egypt here are told to wail. And, and I think we can all understand what it means to wail, right? I mean, we understand that word. It's not just a little crying. It's not just a tear here and there. Not a little sadness or anything. This is a strong and deep despair that the, the prophet here tells Egypt to, to be prepared to do, to wail with this coming judgment. We can imagine any people who would suffer defeat in war in their own land wailing, right? I mean, if we can imagine that happening here in America, a nation invading America and seeing the death of our loved ones and friends and just an invasion of, of another country coming in and destroying all that we've known, I mean, it would cause us to wail. So we can see the, the, the grief, I guess, here and, and the despair of the people of Egypt that, that would come in this, this judgment. Verse 2 tells us, it says, alas, for the day. And then in verse 3 we see, it speaks of a very uh, of this, this same day, a very important time and a very important term is mentioned here. It says, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, the day of the Lord, again, is a very important term in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But especially in the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's, it's used more often in the Old Testament. Uh, it is used quite often in the New Testament as well, but more often in the Old Testament. It, it has a definite 
future eschatological implication when, when used almost always, uh, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But it often also refers to events that are happening at that time and in that day. It, it, it has a kind of a dual meaning a lot of times, the day of the Lord when we see that, that read. So what does it mean here when it says the day of the Lord is near, speaking of this judgment? Well, the context of this passage clues us in some. It talks to us, we'll, we'll read, and we've read a little bit of the, the victory of Babylon here, the invasion of Babylon in Egypt and the victory over Egypt. So that, this is certainly talking about that day. It's not, it's not future-looking so much uh, in, of, of that. It's, going to talk, it's talking about things that would happen in this time period, in this age. But... Again, there seems to always be a future implication here. And let's see if there is that here. Almost always there's that near and future looking context. And the Old Testament is replete with these examples. The book of Joel is a great example of that. In the book of Joel, the first two chapters, it details the day of the Lord. speaks about the day of the Lord multiple times. But it's talking about the invasion of Assyria into Israel, that, that northern kingdom of, of Israel, right? It talks about that captivity, the Assyrian captivity in those first two chapters. But then in chapter 3, it goes on and it speaks clearly of a, of a day of the Lord as well, but a future day of the Lord, a future day of judgment, which has not taken place yet and will come on the world as a whole. That's just one example. If you want to take the time and, and go look at that, uh, when, when, you know, when, we, when we get done tonight, you can take a look at that and kind of study that. But, but you'll see in those first two chapters a, a current implication of the, the, the day of the Lord and what that means, a, a current judgment that is to come, and then a future implicating, implicated judgment there in chapter 3. You'll also see this spoken of quite often in uh, the, the New Testament, as I stated. You can see the, the day of the Lord spoken of, and it's speaking of future events. The day of the Lord spoken of in the book of Acts. You can see it in 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Peter, in uh, Philemon, in First and Second Corinthians, in, in the book of Revelation. It, it is all through the New Testament as well. Suffice it to say that this day, this day of the Lord, has great significance. It's got great consequence as well. Here in our chapter, we see the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Here in our chapter, for Egypt and the nations who were conquered by Babylon, now we've gone over Tyre, we talked about a few nations other than Tyre that were conquered by Babylon. Jeremiah speaks of several of those nations as well that are conquered by Babylon in this same time period, mainly by King Nebuchadnezzar, but so here in this chapter, in this same time period, these, these nations who were conquered by Babylon during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, these were most of the nations known in the world at this time. That was the known world, really. Nations who would have been known by Ezekiel and by Jeremiah, by Israel. So in a sense, you could say that this judgment brought on by God through the hand of Nebuchadnezzar was God's judgment on the whole world then, right? The whole known world then. So even though this is certainly a a judgment which took place during the life of Ezekiel, there is a double meaning here, I think, in, in the use of this term, the day of the Lord. And it's meant for us to see this as an example of what will happen on the whole world in the ultimate day of the Lord to come, that future-looking eschatological event that, that is commonly associated with this day. 
So at the end of verse 3, Ezekiel says that this day will be one of clouds and doom. Now, what do we think of when we, we think of clouds most often? Maybe not the, the puffy white clouds where we're trying to make figures out of them, but most of the time when you hear of clouds are coming or clouds are coming in or we're covered with clouds, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, 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 a gloomy thing, right? It's a, it's a time of a dreary or a storm is coming. And that is the picture we're to get here. The mention of clouds and then of doom are meant to show us this ominous picture being painted of what is to come on Egypt. Now, this, pro- this prophecy, again, is primarily for the nation of Egypt. They are the focus. But as we will see as we work through this, there are other nations that are a part of this judgment as well. Nations who will, we will soon see are included because of their reliance or of, on their, because of their alliance with Egypt. And so it's possible that this all nations here who would come under the hand of judgment by Babylon during this period is a, is a reference to just these, these nations who had made an alliance with Egypt and who had relied on Egypt. Nations like, uh, like we will see Cush and Put and Lud and, and Arabia and Libya. Now how will this judgment come about? Well, verse 4 tells us that a sword will come upon Egypt. And, and a sword is just another way of saying a conquering army. This army will bring anguish for Cush or Ethiopia as the slain fall in Egypt. See, Cush was an ally of Egypt. And as an ally of Egypt, they depended on Egypt. They depended on their protection, their military might. And and as this destruction came upon Egypt, there's no question that they would be anxious and really terrified to see her fall. There's no doubt that they they would know that their fall was likely coming as well as one who had sided with Egypt. As part of this judgment, the wealth of Egypt, we see, will be carried away and her foundations will be torn down. All of that pride that they had will go away. The pride that had been, been associated with them had been built up for nearly 30 centuries. Her military might, her wealth, her great buildings, all will be destroyed, will be desolate. Egypt, this long-time world power, would be no more. No more in the sense of a world power. Not that they would go away completely, but they would no longer be this world power they had been for so long. Then in verses, verses 5-8, through eight, we, we begin to dig in a little bit to these nations. and we, we see included in this judgment these nations who had allied with Egypt or who were in league with them. Verse 5 states that Cush or Ethiopia, who was in the upper Nile region, would be part of this judgment. Put was just an African nation. Lud is what we know of as, as Lydia today. And then we see all of Arabia and Libya were part of this, who were in league of, uh, with Egypt and allies with them. Now we know from the Lament of Tyre a couple of chapters ago that Put and Lud had actually, they were part of the army of Egypt. They had put some of their, their mercenaries there in the Egyptian army and some of these others could have been part of that as well, how they showed their alliance with Egypt. We see here, that it says, and the people of the land, here at the end, after all these, these nations are named, it says, and the people of the land that, are, that is in league. We see that, that, that term there. The NIV actually translates this a little bit differently. It translates it, the people of the covenant land. So this is, this is a different group from these, these previous nations. And I think the, the translation that the NIV here has, the, the people of the covenant land, kind of keys us into who Ezekiel is talking about here. The people of the covenant land, what is the covenant land? Well, that would be the land, the promised land, right? The covenant land with Egypt. 
the land, or excuse me, with Israel, the land that, that God had covenanted to the Jews. So it's very likely here that Ezekiel is speaking of the Jews here. But what Jews would have been in Egypt at this time? What Jews would have been dwelling in Egypt? We know Israelites had been taken into captivity. The northern uh, kingdom had been, had been taken into captivity in Assyria. And most of the southern kingdom of Judah had been taken into Babylon at this time. So who would have been there to be in Egypt and would have been part of this, this group who would also be uh, in league with Egypt and, and fall under this judgment? Well, we know after the fall of Jerusalem in that third and final wave of, kept, or of invasion and captivity by Babylon, there remained a small number of Jews in the Promised Land. You can read about that in Jeremiah. Jeremiah details that uh, in, in great detail. Most of those that were left behind at that time were very poor. They were those who Babylon had deemed not worthy really to be part of the nation. They couldn't contribute anything to Babylon really. And so they were left behind. Interestingly enough, Jeremiah was actually one of those who was left behind. He stayed behind there in, uh, in the, the promised land. But in his case, he chose to do that. He, he, was, he wasn't forced to do that. He was actually tried, they tried to encourage him to, to go to Babylon with them, with the, the, the Babylonian army, but uh, they ultimately gave him the choice whether to go or to stay in, and Jeremiah chose to stay in the land there. But King Nebuchadnezzar had also left behind with that group of people. He left behind a name, man by the name of uh, Gedaliah. He was there to be kind of over the people. He wasn't going to be a king. He was just going to be a governor of all the people who remain. He was soon murdered. You can read of that in 2 Kings and also in Jeremiah. But as a result of this, many of the people that had remained behind there in Israel they, they were afraid, right? They were afraid after their, the governor was murdered who Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, had put into power. I mean, they, they were afraid that Nebuchadnezzar would return after finding out about this and he would basically just put to death everybody that he left behind. Now, we know that one of the main reasons why Nebuchadnezzar actually invaded that third and final time, uh, invaded Judah that third and final time, was because Judah and their current, current king, King Zedekiah, had made an a covenant with Egypt to try to protect them or get them out of the yoke of Babylon. And so obviously, Nebuchadnezzar saw that as, as a, a breaking of their treaty. He, he saw that as treason, basically, against him. And so that was the primary reason why he had invaded there for that third and final time. So the people remaining, they knew that, right? They knew that was the reason and, and why they had such great destruction had finally come on them this last time and why their, their great city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And again, they saw yet another reason why Nebuchadnezzar would see this as, as a, another rebellion, see this as a, a reason to come back and wipe them out, so to speak. So, they go to Jeremiah, this, this last group of remaining uh, people there, uh, Jews in, in Israel, they go to Jeremiah in chapter 42. If you want to turn with me, we'll take just a minute. We can go to chapter 42 in Jeremiah. We'll read a little bit of this. They come to Jeremiah and they beg him to seek counsel from the Lord about what they should do. Now mind you, Jeremiah had been, he'd been prophesying to them the word of the Lord for decades. And they had continuously refused to listen. Uh, never had they paid attention or listened as a, as a whole, as a nation. They had refused to listen. But here, after seeing all this destruction and being so afraid, they, they kind of break down and they finally come to Him. So in verse 40, or chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Then all the commanders of the forces of Johanan, the son of Korea, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, 
And all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So we see they're scared. They go to Jeremiah say, Please, Please just go to God for us. Find out what we need to do. Find out what His answer is for us. And it doesn't matter what He says, we're going to do it. We're going to follow it. Whether we think it's good or bad, whatever your word is, whatever the word of the Lord is, that's what we're going to do. So, verse 7, at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders and the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, speaking of the promised land, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there, then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you. But you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that He sent me to tell you. Now therefore know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. I don't know how much clearer God could be. He sent, they, they go to Jeremiah, please get a word from the Lord. Jeremiah says, I'll do that. I'll tell you everything he says. So great, we'll do exactly what he says. No matter what, doesn't matter what he says, we'll do it. Ten days later, 
Jeremiah comes back to him. I've got a word from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. If you follow me, if you listen to me, if you trust me and stay in this land, I will protect you. I will plant you up and not pluck you out. I will keep you. I will build you up. I will protect you from the king of Babylon that you fear. He will not touch you. But if you do not, if you follow your heart into Egypt, if you go to Egypt for protection, you will die there. Exactly the way you fear you're going to die now. By the hand that you fear fear you're going to die here in this land, you're going to die there in Egypt if you go. What's their response? Chapter 43, When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. You were telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Barak the son of Neriah has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. If you continue on, you'll see that they, they follow their hearts. They follow their, their own inclinations. They go on to Egypt. Jeremiah 44 then goes on to explain and warns of the, the coming destruction of Egypt which these Jews had fled to for safety. The, the exact prophecies that Ezekiel is speaking of here, this destruction of Egypt, it comes on Egypt with the people of, of Israel in Egypt. That's the people that's spoken of here in this, this chapter here, this land, uh, the, the people of the land that is in the league. So, in verse 6, Yahweh states that all who support Egypt shall fall, and her proud might will come down. So here, a proud might is a reference to her military might. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Egypt, they'd been a major world power for many years, right? Not only had they been able to defend themselves through that time, but if they, they were an ally to a nation, that nation was likely safe as well. Not many nations wanted to challenge Egypt. And that's why Israel actually sought her, her protection so often, right? But in this text, we see that all who supported her or depended on her took sides with her over Babylon. Specifically, they too would fall. They would have no protection. That military might Egypt had had for so long, it would do them no good. They would be desolate. They would be destroyed like a fire destroys everything when it burns. Ezekiel then writes from Migdal to Cyrene. And in doing so, he's encompassing really the, the whole of Egypt here. It's kind of like what we might say from New York to California, or maybe probably more accurately from, from Florida to Washington, because Migdal and Cyrene represent the most northern and southern parts of Egypt. I think Florida is the most southern. I mean, it's not Texas, right? It's Florida, I think, maybe. Either way, you get what I'm saying. But that, that, that all of Egypt would fall, would, would fall under this, this destruction, this conquering of Babylon. Now, this doesn't actually mean that Babylon is going to go into every single city in Egypt and every single city is going to be desolate by their, their invasion or be diminished, but it does mean that the whole nation of Egypt would be diminished in that sense. They would, they would be lesser. They would be conquered. As you can see from verse 7, though, this will be a thorough defeat says, and they shall be desolated in the midst of desolated countries, and their cities shall be in the midst of cities that are laid waste. 
And Yahweh here is re-emphasizing this is not only going to be a crushing of Egypt, but also those who are allied with them. Then in verses 9-12, through God details more of this invasion and the conquering army. Sometime around the day of their defeat, messengers, we're told, will go out from God on ships to Cush. And this is probably a reference to the Egyptians themselves fleeing from this war, fleeing from, from the destruction, and they're, they're landing there in Cush with this message of defeat. And these messengers would, would bring that bad news, and the terror would fall on the people of Cush as this came. They would be unsuspecting of this, though, because you know, they, they believed that the military might of Egypt could not be defeated. I mean, that's why they put their trust in them. That's why they put their hope in them. And as I mentioned above, they, they had have had uh, put their trust and their might in, in everything that Egypt had done, had done, but all of that would be crushed. As the sovereign God of the universe, as the one who brought this judgment on Egypt and her allies, God will be the one controlling these ships and sending them to Cush with a purpose. And that purpose is the message of defeat. Then in verse 10, God is very specific as to who is going to bring this destruction, this judgment. He says that King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would defeat Egypt and destroy their wealth. He says that the land would be filled with the slain because of this ruthlessness of Babylon. Look, Babylon was certainly known for their ruthlessness. I mean, you can look no further to, to the invasion of Judah to see the ruthlessness of, of Babylon. After sacking the city of Jerusalem and capturing King Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar had all of Zedekiah's sons put to death right in front of him. And then as soon as he put them to death, he put out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. It's just an example of the ruthlessness of the nation of Babylon. We're told in verse 12 that God would dry up the Nile. It's common, it would be common for invading armies to to use tactics like this to prevent a a, a nation that they're invading from getting or keeping essential resources. And, And the Nile was the source of life and wealth for Egypt. Without it, Egypt was really nothing more than a barren wilderness. I like what Brian quoted from Charles Feinberg last week about the Nile when he said, instead of Pharaoh making the Nile, which the Pharaoh had claimed, made that claim as, as a god, he had made the Nile, but instead of Pharaoh making the Nile, the Nile had made him. Without it, the land would have been a, a desert, and that, that's true. From the Nile, Egypt had canal systems of irrigation, which were essential for their crops and, and for their uh, their, their food. It would have been likely that Nebuchadnezzar would have attempted to stop the flow then of the Nile, either completely or to some degree, probably specifically in their irrigation systems, and that would have crippled Egypt as he came in to conquer Egypt. And we know from this text that this is likely exactly what happened in the invasion. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. So as we've gone through this prophecy and we've seen God address Egypt here, we've seen two things so far that Egypt depended on most put as made desolate. We've seen their army, their might made desolate, and we've seen their Nile, the Nile, the, the source of their wealth and, and the source of, of their power really in, in to, to great extent. We've seen it made desolate, made useless against the invading army. God would sell Egypt into the hands of other evildoers, we're told, meaning that foreigners, mostly likely these Babylonians, would exploit the Egyptian land and, and the goods there for their own benefit. And in doing so, God would, would desolate it by the hands of, of these foreigners or these, these Babylonians. And then in verses 13 through 19, we see God really speak to the depth 
of this defeat by, by naming all of the great cities in the land of Egypt during the life of Ezekiel which would be affected by this invasion. We also see here this third thing, this third area in which Egypt depended on, they trusted on, their idols, their, their fake religious worship. They, they de- depended on that. They trusted in that. We also will see the defeat of that here as well. Look, false worship and idols, they were maybe more prevalent in Egypt than any other nation that we've ever known. They had gods associated with every area of life. There were gods to assist in childbearing, household duties, harvesting of crops. There were river gods. There were sun gods. There were animal gods. It's believed that at one point, there were as many as 12,000 gods worshipped in the nation or in the, the land of Egypt. God says He's going to destroy them though. They would be, of course, no help to Egypt in this invasion. Ezekiel goes on to mention eight major cities here in Egypt, which were prominent cities of religious, political, and military might. He mentions Memphis first. Memphis was a major city which represented the lower portion of Egypt or lower Egypt and was a center of worship for two of Egypt's main gods, Ta. And Apis, we see Pathros mentioned next, which was a major city which represented Upper Egypt. So these first two are mentioned, and they represented really Upper and Lower Egypt, the, all, the, the entirety of Egypt here. It was also a major military strength of Egypt. Zoan was probably the land of Goshen, where Israel had settled there in Genesis. And it has been thought of, it was thought of enough uh, to have been a capital city of one point there in Egypt. Thebes was also located in Upper Egypt, and it was, a, it was the capital city of Upper Egypt. Thebes was probably the most prominent and important city there in Egypt. It was the center of worship for one of the most renowned gods of, of Egypt, Amun-Ra. And then Pelusium is mentioned next, which is located in the northeast part of Egypt. And as mentioned here, it was a mighty stronghold as well in the land, and, but it too would fall. It seems by saying that Memphis shall face enemies by day, Ezekiel saying that the enemies would be so assured of their victory that they were going to attack in plain sight. They were going to attack without any deception, any attempts to conceal their attacks or their army, and their attacks would be relentless. They would be by day, they would be constant. Then the next two places mentioned here, On and Pabaseth, were especially known for that their idolatry. On, also known as Heliopolis, was renowned for its worship of the sun. Pabaseth was renowned for their worship of cats. I hate cats. In case you are wondering. According to the historian Herodotus, this city would host annual festivals for their 700, where 700,000 people would gather to worship the cat-headed goddess at Ubastet. I think that's how you say her name. Ubastet. These young men mentioned here are likely a reference to the young men that were training to be priests in those, those religions, or those, those temples. The final place mentioned here, Tehepeth, that place, Tehepeth, it's Daphne in Greek, we'll just leave it there. Um, this was the city where pharaohs, the pharaohs stayed. This is the place where the reign of Egypt would finally descend to darkness, and I think that's why Ezekiel mentions, here, mentions it here last. This is the place where God would break the yoke bars of Egypt, which had been on most of the world for centuries. No longer would nations seek her protection, and no longer would nations fear her might at the fall of this, this place. 
The verbs that God uses here to describe the destruction throughout these, these few verses, He says destroy, to put an end to, to make desolate, to set fire to, to cut off. All of those should leave really no question as to the devastation which would be left behind by the, the invading, conquering army of Babylon. I like the point that Wearsby makes when he says that the devastating judgment that God sent to Egypt before the Exodus should have taught the Egyptians a lasting lesson, but apparently they had forgotten it. We see that here. This is that if they had remembered what had happened to them the last time they opposed God and the last time they did not see Yahweh as God, it, it was great destruction, right? We see that in. in uh, the, the conquering, basically, of Egypt by God Himself and the plagues and in, in the bringing out of the Israelites, but they had forgotten that. But I, I think, and I, I'm going to try to make this point here, uh, I think we see a, a parallel in many ways between Egypt and, and Israel. We see this in this chapter. Even in this, I, I think that we see a parallel between the, the two groups. The Egyptians, they should have remembered what God had done to them, right? To their land when He brought the Hebrews out from them. But they forgot. And, and so here is the judgment coming again. Yet, the Israelites should have remembered it even more vividly, right? I mean, that event was, was written in their Holy Scripture. It was commemorated in festivals and in the law. Yet, they forgot as well. We're told here that the Egyptians would go into captivity. In verse 26 of this chapter, God tells us that He will scatter them among the nations. As Brian brought out last week, they would return in 40 years to their land. All three of those things are things that are very similar to the language and prophecies given to Egypt or to Israel and to Judah, right? Of the scattering of them, of the bringing them back to their land. Why are there these similarities? Well, it could be just coincidence. I mean, this could be just coincidence here. It could be just how, you know, there's just a similarity here and there's nothing to make of that. But I do think there's more for us to see. I don't want to speak to the white spaces here, but, but Egypt is commonly seen as a, a land of the lost, right? A, a land of darkness, a, a, a land of sin, a place where Israel was not to return to. They were not to be a part of. A place where God had brought them out of a place He had brought them out of bondage into freedom. And so Israel ran parallel in many ways to, to Egypt, and, and, and we see them in this chapter, but they were supposed to be the complete opposite of each other, right? Israel was supposed to be the opposite of Egypt. So with that in mind, I want you to notice here in verse 19 what God says about Egypt's recognition of here in verse 19, of him here. In verse 19 it says, "Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, then they will know that I am the Lord." Okay, that's what it says here about their, their recognition of here. Now, I made mention in the lamentation of the king of Tyre that Ezekiel uses that statement or a similar version of that statement quite often in this book, that they will know that I am the Lord. And that is a major emphasis being put on and given to all the nations, including Judah, uh, of, of what they need to know, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. He's the only one. He is the only one true God. He's in control of them whether they believe it or not. And He's certainly in control of their kings, right? But there's one major difference in that statement throughout this book. Read again here what it says. It says, Then they will know that I am the Lord. Right? God does not say that they will know I am their Lord. 
I am their God, right? That is what he repeatedly tells Israel and Judah, though. They will know that I am their God. After judgment prophecies were given to Israel and Judah by God's prophets, they told them the reason for these judgments. They were given to them so that they would know that Yahweh was their God. They were done to cleanse His people then, to bring them back to Him in repentance and faithfulness. They were done to show God's faithfulness to His people, to His covenant people and to His promises. Conversely, these judgments pronounced and issued on Egypt were not for the purpose of repentance and faithfulness or to show God's promise, His faithfulness to His promises to the, to the covenant He'd made with them. They were for the purpose of showing a pagan nation that their gods were powerless and that Yahweh is the one true God and they were going to answer to Him and Him alone. So we, we see these parallels. We see the opposite meanings here though, right? We see kind of how Israel is, is the opposite of Egypt and, uh, as, a, as this pagan nation. And even in, in the execution of this judgment, the, even though they're similar in the language, there's that opposite ultimate purpose, I think, here. Then in this last section... Verses 20 through 26, we read, In the eleventh year, in the first month of the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and behold, it is not bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage, so it may become strong to wield the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries. And I will strengthen the arms of the kings of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before, uh, before him like a man, of mortally, a man mortally wounded. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries, then they will know that I am the Lord. Here in this last section, Ezekiel's given very specific date as to when some of this happened or will happen. This message that he's given here, we're told, is in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, which is apparently April 29th of 587 BC. This would have been roughly three to four months after the prophecy there in chapter 29, and, and, and very possibly the, the first part of this chapter as well. Verse 21 tells us that the arm of Pharaoh was broken by God. Now, the king or or, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt during most of Ezekiel's ministry was a man by the name of Hophra. He was the ruler who agreed to ally with Judah against Babylon. When Babylon invaded Judah in 588 B.C., Hophra actually did attempt to come to their aid, at least to some extent. Brian spoke of this last week, but, but Babylon withdrew their forces from Judah to address the Egyptian attack, and, and Babylon then went on to defeat that Egyptian army who had, who had somewhat invaded or tried to invade themselves. Babylon didn't go on at that point to invade Egypt, but Egypt did suffer a major defeat at their hands at that point. The, the, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptian army then. The name or title Hophra, though, it, it, it means possessed of a muscular arm or a strong-armed man. So I think God chose this language for a reason. God chose this language of breaking the arm of Pharaoh for a reason. 
it is a reference to the defeat of that, that pharaoh, that king Hophra. And this seems to be exactly what, exactly what Ezekiel is referencing here by the breaking of his arm. Kind of the, the pun there, the, the play on that, that name, his name. In verse 22, Pharaoh receives what should have been a, a terrifying statement, right? Uh, this is addressed him, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look, when that is said, there is no escaping that, right? I mean, there's no place to hide from Yahweh. There's no place to run from Him. There's no defeating Him. This was doom for Egypt and for Pharaoh. And God promises that that will come. He promises, goes on to promise that He will break both arms. The strong arm and the arm that was already broken will remain broken. There will be no bandaging it, no, no healing it. The sword would fall out of His hand. And then later He says that He would mortally wound Him like a man. So despite the Pharaoh professing to be a god, the only God, Yahweh, would show him he was only a man. He would die. Now, there were three Babylonian, major Babylonian defeats of Egypt under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. There's Carchemish in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh Necho. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24, Jeremiah 46. And some think that is what that first reference, the strong arm, or not the strong arm, but that first arm being broken, what that, that reference is. But I, I really don't think so. Again, I think that is talking about the defeat of Hophra there in 588 or 587 B.C. That final defeat, though, of Egypt, which this, this second breaking of the arm and, and the, the destruction of, of or the death of Pharaoh would come, uh, it was in 565 or 564 B.C. where Egypt came in and decimated, uh, or Babylon came in and decimated Egypt according to a number of, of historians. So about 20 years after the defeat of Hophra there, they came and, and attempted to help uh, Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar here is just going to be a tool of God's in the execution of, of this judgment. And you can see that in this, this chapter. I mean, it's constantly, I will, I will, I will. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar will be the, the king, the ruler that is leading Babylon, and Babylon will be the army that executes this judgment. But God, make no mistake, God is the one that is sending this judgment. He's executing this judgment. He's in complete control of this judgment. And at the end, they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that because they will no longer be in power. The Pharaoh would no, no longer be ruling. Instead, the one who God sent would be the one with the sword, would be the one with the might. So what do we take from a chapter like this? What do we think about as some, some application? I, I think a couple of things we can think about. And as I was studying through this, you know, a thought popped in my mind. Why Babylon over Egypt, right? I mean, why, why would God choose to bring destruction of Egypt over Babylon? I mean, why would He use Babylon to do that? Well, I mean, both were evil, right? I mean, Babylon was an evil nation. I mean, they, they were shown to be ruthless. They were not... Egypt, or excuse me, they were not Israel, they were not Judah, they were not God's people. We do know Nebuchadnezzar, God's, or the, the king of, of Babylon, we believe was ultimately saved. We, we, you know, we believe we read that in, in Daniel, and he was ultimately a child of God, and he saw God for who he was. But still, the nation as a whole was an evil nation. They remained that way. But Egypt had been obviously around for a long time, right? They had been a, a, a nation who had been mighty and powerful for a long time. They had been oppressors, even more so, of Israel for a long time. And we know they didn't fulfill their promises to, to Israel ultimately against Babylon, right? And, and so, ultimately, I, see what, I think what we see here is God finally executing judgment on Egypt as a, a nation who had been ruthless 
and had oppressed Israel for a long time. And, and, and also, I think we're seeing in this that no world power stays around forever. Right? I'll, I'll talk about that here more in just a second. But let's not forget, let's not escape the fact that these, the judgment of these nations all surround their mistreatment of Israel and, and how they've dealt with Israel, God's people. There, there's their own punishment for their arrogance and their, their pride and what they had built up. But a big part of this is the fact that they had been oppressors of God's people. And God does not take that lightly. And probably no other nation had done that for longer or greater than, than Egypt had. We should also see in this that God is sovereign. And that is what we are continuously seeing in this book is God is sovereign. He's over everything and everyone. He is in control. There's no nation, there's no people that are greater than He is that will be able to stand against Him or oppose Him. We also see Egypt here had opposed God's purposes for Israel. Not only had they oppressed them, but they had opposed God's purposes of Israel. See, God had intended for Israel to be judged by Babylon, right? I mean, that's why he, he continuously sent the, uh, the, prophets, the prophets to tell Judah there, I'm sending Babylon to judge you for your sins. You submit to Babylon. It's happening. You just submit to them. And, and don't try to fight this because this is happening. Yet, when they allied with Israel, when Egypt allied with Israel, it was an, an attempt to thwart that judgment, right? To thwart God's purposes, They were against God then and His judgment that He purposed for Israel. And then again, by ultimately abandoning Judah in their time of need, Israel furthered their sin against God by by abandoning His people. So we see a multifaceted uh, reason for judgment coming on Egypt here. And I think for us, what we are to see here is that we are to to follow God's Word and not attempt to, to, to thwart it. We should never attempt to thwart God's Word. We trust it, we obey it, we follow it. When we don't trust it, when we put our faith in other things, and when we do anything else other than what God tells us to do, we are ultimately trying to thwart God's Word, and that will never end in a good way for us. Also, no earthly power lasts forever. I mentioned that a minute ago, but look, many earthly powers have come and gone. Throughout the history of mankind, Egypt is just one example. And if the Lord tarries... America will likely be another example. We can see judgment right now coming on us from the inside as Romans speaks about, of God's judgment on a people. If, again, God tarries and He allows and He doesn't bring some form of of revival and repentance to our nation, then it's very likely that one day we will see a, a fall of America to another outside force as well. We have had a long time. We've been powerful. We've been feared. But as we can see with Egypt, that can come crashing down very quickly. We don't need to trust in America. We trust in God. Many smaller nations have done that and, and still do rely on our wealth and our military might. We as Americans, again, need to put our trust and hope in God instead of the wealth and military might of America. If God is ready to judge us from the outside then He's going to do that. Everything we know we see can come crashing down in an instance, just like it did with Egypt here. And many after her, many nations after her. So again, we don't trust in what we see. We don't trust in our, our great wealth, our great power here in America. We're thankful for the blessings that we have, but we don't trust in any of that. We trust in God and God alone. Stand with me.